Liz Sumner, and this is I Always Wanted To, the podcast where I interview people who are doing things that others long to do. What have you always wanted to try? My guest today is Becky Barnes, paleontologist with the North Dakota Geological Survey in Bismarck, North Dakota. Like many of us, her love of paleontology began at a young age, but she never grew out of it and now gets to collect fossils for a living. Welcome, Becky. Thank you for having me. So you might not know the answer to this, but why do you think that children love dinosaurs? I think kids like dinosaurs for a very similar reason to to why I like dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are monsters, but they're real monsters. They're monsters that you can study and touch and research and go to a museum and see. Um, So I I think it's it's just part of that imaginative part of of being human, being being people that we we like to study and we like to learn about these these big scary things. It's kind of a human thing where we're like we're constantly thrill seeking the higher roller coasters or going on a wild adventure or hike or river rafting and dinosaurs. That is a perfect explanation. So so tell me how you got involved from from your start as a child. What what steps did you take? So I was one of those classic cases of being bitten by a case of dinosauritis at a very <laughs> young age. And I, I, I grew up in a household that loved monsters, that loved fairy tales, Arthurian legends. If it was a dragon, a griffin, a chimera, I, I was in love. And when I was about five years old, my dad took me to a local museum that had a traveling exhibit. It was called the Dynamation Display. And they were these big, hokey, animatronic dinosaurs. (laughs) You could smell the grease. You could smell the electronics. And I went wandering through there. And it struck me that these creatures, these these dinosaurs, which I had never heard about before, were real. And and they just became my dragons. And ever since then, I've just been studying my dragons. Wow, that's wonderful. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Moorhead, Minnesota. And is that a, a region that has a lot of fossil history? or? <laughs> Sadly, no. Uh, Moorhead, Minnesota is actually in the middle of the Red River Valley, which is uh, great for farmland. It is the leftover bits and pieces of what used to be called uh, Lake Agassiz. And we had this big glacial runoff, this meltwater that carried down all of this beautiful topsoil, which unfortunately covered all the local fossils. So I had to do uh, a little bit of traveling and and going to non-local museums if I actually wanted to see something that was prehistoric. Um, So great for farmland, terrible for fossils. (laughs) So how did you get to North Dakota? Uh, North Dakota ended up being kind of a... uh, a perfect storm of events. So I grew up in Moorhead and I did part of my schooling in Moorhead, Minnesota. I got my bachelor's degree from Concordia College in Moorhead. And I I managed to start volunteering at a local college when I was about 16 years old. And I was able to, to work in their geology lab, their paleontology lab, and then attend some of my first fossil digs. And after that point, by the time I graduated high school, I had the choice of do I stay here? Do I go on? But they had this opportunity right there, right close by that I could attend this college, 
and travel to go study these fossils that I've been working on for the last two years. So sure, applied, got in, uh, received my bachelor's degree, and then you had to make a decision on, do you stop? Do you try to find a job or do you go on for more education? And so I looked at lots of different colleges. You know, I looked at Montana and I looked at South Dakota. And if I wanted my, my little piece of paper to say paleontologist, I needed to go down to the, the uh, School of Mines in Rapid City, South Dakota. But again, that collection was right there in Minnesota. So I hopped across the river to Fargo, North Dakota and approached North Dakota State University, hit up their biology department and went, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to study dinosaurs. Can you help me? And the biology department went, nope, we're full up. Go talk to geology. <laughs> okay. So headed downstairs, talked to geology, explained the same thing. And the, the gentleman who ended up being my major advisor, Dr. Alan Ashworth, threw back his head and went, oh, not another dinosaur. <laughs> but he was very kind and he let me, he let me uh, on board with the program. But he said that he didn't study dinosaurs. He studied prehistoric beetles and climate change. So if I wanted to study dinosaurs, I had to gather together uh, people who knew biology. So somebody from the biology department, uh, probably some statistics. So I got the chair from the statistics department. I got the chair from the biology department. And then I had to gather together somebody who worked more with the dinosaurs who ended up being my major advisor at Concordia. So I just uh -huh. gathered together all these people. It worked beautifully. Ended up getting my master's. And then now what do I do? The jobs in paleontology are very, very few and far between. So you, part of it is luck, part of it is skill, trying to find something. Mm -hmm. And there was an opening that occurred in Bismarck, North Dakota. Fantastic. So I applied for the job and I didn't get it. Mm. I was crushed. Mm. Well, all right, so I taught for a year. And then another opening occurred in Bismarck, North Dakota. It, okay, well, I'll apply for that one too. So I did, and I managed to snake that one. And I'm very happy that I did not get the first job. Mm -hmm. My my coworker, Jeff Person, got that job, which is a collections manager, which is good. It's in the field of paleontology. It's extremely important, but I'm a lab rat. Mm -hmm. I like getting my hands in the dirt, and I like getting the, the lab work done and the fossil restoration and cleaning. So I ended up uh, actually, I'm, I'm now the lab manager for the Johns Rood Paleontology Lab. So long, wow. long story roundabout, but ended uh -huh. up in Bismarck, North Dakota. So what, what, is, what is lab work when, uh, in paleontology? I, I mean, the only thing I can think of is going out in the field and pounding on rocks. But so what, what's lab work? So lab work is everything that, uh, it's, it's everything behind the curtain. Everything okay. that you never get to see mm -hmm. when you go into a museum. Mm -hmm. And for me, that would include gathering together any of the Ziploc bags or big plaster jackets that we end up making in the field, bringing them back to the lab, opening them up, and cleaning and restoring those pieces. Sometimes we can get those pieces back together again if it's um, uh, like a complete bone or something that was jacketed together so it, all, all the pieces go together. But sometimes you end up collecting what we call float. And that's just material that's scattered on the surface. It's kind of weathered and worn and sun bleached. And sometimes it goes together and sometimes it doesn't. So it requires a lot of patience. I have a number of volunteers that work for me and I have rules written on my, on my wall. And, and first rule is patience. And the second rule is thou shalt not use fabric scissors on, on paper. And <laughs> third rule is patience. And, 
<laughs> so it requires uh, good hand-eye coordination, uh, being able to look at color differences and texture differences, uh, being able to tell the difference between rock and fossil or the surrounding soils, how and when to push a fossil and when to stop, when is, is too much for cleaning, because sometimes you actually need to leave some dirt in a fossil just to help support it. Sometimes if you clean up too much, it'll actually destabilize your bones. So you have to uh, kind of get a feel for how much is too much and how much is too little. So it's power tools, it's air scribes, little mini jackhammers that are run, uh, that are pneumatic, they're run by air, uh, big microblasters that shoot baking soda or aluminum oxide, um, all kinds of different tools and techniques. Oh, wow, that's so cool. So tell me about um, the North Dakota area millions of years ago, what, what was going on? Depends on how far back you want to go. Okay. Well, <laughs> the stuff that you see most of the time, what, uh, what, what's common? Well, it's, it's kind of weird for North Dakota. We're, we're very different from a number of other states where if you go to, to like a state, you may find one type of rock or one type of fossil. And North Dakota is kind of weird in that we get a lot of different types depending on where you go. So if you think about layers of rock, like a giant layered cake, mm -hmm. and sometimes you eat more from one section and sometimes the cake gets dropped or mm -hmm. maybe extra frosting gets added to another section of the cake. And so you get this lumpy bumpy effect that, that goes across the state, depending on if you have uplift, if you have glaciers that are acting like giant bulldozers. So we get kind of a mishmash of stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you go up into the Northeastern corner by the Pembina Gorge, it is an amazing area of old growth oak and aspen forests, great topography, huge valleys and uplifts. It's really, really pretty. And in that section, we would find uh, sea monsters. It's actually our oldest surface fossils. So things like mosasaurs and plesiosaurs and fish and giant squid and sea turtles. So there we were, we're talking about 80 million years old or so at the surface. And then if you hop over to the western edge of North Dakota by Medora, there you're looking at about 60-ish million years old at the surface again. And you have passed dinosaurs. So now you're working in what's called the Paleocene, where North Dakota looked like a giant swamp. So kind of like the, the it would be like the North Dakota Everglades. Mm -hmm. So we've gone from open ocean inland sea to Everglades. And then if you hop down uh, to the southwestern corner by Marmoth and Bowman or south of Bismarck, you have your dinosaur era, so around 67-ish million years old. And there you're looking at delta. So old mangrove deltas, floodplains, uh, lots of forests. And then <laughs> travel again, time travel up, to, up closer to the uh, little badlands of North Dakota by Dickinson, North Dakota. And it's, it's like open savanna. You would have grasslands and a much drier climate, uh, things that were living about 35 million years ago, anything from uh, rhinos and camels to saber-toothed cats. So we have this great variety all wow. across North Dakota and, and a ton of different environments. When you speak of surface, what's the depth of surface? Surface is right at your feet. Really? Whatever, whatever you're walking on. Yeah. So, so you really don't have to dig? It's just like things can, can just sort of bubble up to the surface? 
instead of bubbling up, it's more of like a weathering down. Oh, okay. So you have like a, um, a river that's gone through and made a road cut or a river cut as it were, or you've had, um, a lot of erosion take place or glaciers act like giant bulldozers and scrape across your surface and they knock out some of that surrounding rock. Um, so you, you have different levels of erosion or uplift that's occurring. So different time periods end up sitting at your surface. So if you walk in one area uh, one day, how long are we talking between when things would change? Is it a, a season or a decade or what, what kind of time period for seeing a difference in, on the surface? Uh, usually you're looking at about a season. Uh, okay. you, all wow. you need is one really good rainstorm wow. and you can get something new that pops out. Wow. So our site over in Dickinson, we're actually letting rest this year because we had searched it and searched it and searched it for, for about three years, scoured the surface and, and the pieces you pick up start getting smaller and smaller and smaller as, as you've picked up all the big things and you start getting smaller and smaller. Um, and it just needs to sit. It just needs to weather for a good season mm -hmm. so that we can go back to it next year. Um, but yeah, all you really need is just one really good rainstorm and you can get <sighs> brand new stuff. Wow, I had no idea it was that fast. Cool. Um, so what's the coolest thing that you've found? <laughs> Everybody asks that question. It is a really hard question to answer. You would think it would be easy. Um, my idea of cool is maybe a little different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when I was younger, one of the, the first dig sites I was working at down in South Dakota, we were working on a big Edmontosaurus bone bed, so a duckbill dinosaur. And it was like 150 different animals had gotten stuck in a barrel, shaken them up and dump them out. And so every, there's just odds and ends everywhere. And it's all Edmontosaurus. Now we're digging, digging, digging for summers. I mean, we went back to this site for years and we hit this weird little prong of bone that was below where we, where we guesstimate the, the bottom of that bone bed was. So we kept digging a little bit deeper and it ended up being the lower beak the lower jaw section of a triceratops. And it was Ooh. pristine. You could see the blood vessel grooves. It was, it was in beautiful condition. And it, you know, kind of helps that triceratops is my favorite dinosaur. It's mine too! I was gonna ask you. I saw a thing on, on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. Somebody said, when you become an adult, nobody ever asks you, what's your favorite dinosaur? I know, it's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible, but uh, that's mine too. So why is triceratops your favorite? Uh, Triceratops is my favorite because you know, way back when, when I got to go see that Dynamation display, mm -hmm. um, uh, also again, grew up in a family where if you said, I want, I want, I want, it was an automatic no. <laughs> and so you learn from a very young age to respect that and wander around and say, oh, well, this is very cool, or this would be really neat if I had that, or yeah, I would take really good care of this if it was mine, but you didn't say I want. And we went wandering through the gift store and there was a stuffed Triceratops puppet. And I wanted it so bad, <laughs> but I knew the rules. <laughs> and so I went through the store and I touched it. And I went through the store again and I held it. And I went through the store a third time and just kind of breathed a sigh and off we went. <laughs> and then my next birthday came around and they handed me this box. And I opened up this box and here was the puppet inside the box. And my parents said that the only thing in the entire store that I touched was this puppet over and over again. So it was a triceratops, loved it, still do, sits on my That's desk. That's good. 
and you have you have good sensitive parents good <laughs> so so tell me about what tourists can do what's available to people who want to come and get a taste of of what you love every summer the north dakota geological survey puts on a uh, summer public fossil digs and so we go across the state to different sites between June, July, and August. We start when school ends and we stop when, when school's starting again. And so we'll, we'll jump between different sites. And you can sign up for a day, a couple days. We've run into a problem in the past where people get super excited and they don't know what to expect. And so they'll sign up for an entire week. <laughs> and then they get out there and realize, it's hard. It's hot. <laughs> it's sticky. You have to work. And, and so they kind of back out after like two days. Mm -hmm. So for brand new people, we do put a limit on how many days they can go out on a dig. And so they'll, they'll come out for a taste, get their toes wet, see what it's like, see if they even like it, see, mm -hmm. see if they've fallen in love or if they can just cross it off their bucket list and say, I'm done, mm -hmm. I'm out. Mm -hmm. And if they want to come back the next year, they can. And once they come back that next year, then, then their days can increase. Mm -hmm. And what, what's a day like um, for, for a, uh, what do you, you, fossil hunter? What do you call, what do you call the people who? We call them who, day diggers. Day diggers, okay. If, if you come with us a whole bunch, then you become a fossil groupie. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. So days include, well, you know, prior to this year included gathering together in the morning, we would have an orientation, a little PowerPoint uh, video on what in the world you're going to be doing. So a little, little brief uh, informal presentation. And then we would hit the site and then I would usually show people what tools they would be using for each site because the tools differ depending on if you're working at Dickinson or Bismarck or Pembina. And so I would show you what your tools were how you are to use your tools, how you are not to use your tools, and thou shalt not stab. And if you stab the dirt, I take your tools away. <laughs> uh, it's only happened a couple times. They didn't believe me. <laughs> but stabbing the dirt kills fossils. It's not good. So we'll, we'll show them what to do. Then we just walk around and assist people. So we sit them down at wherever they're, they're feeling lucky and they start digging mm -hmm. through and start removing the overburden and as they get closer and closer to those fossil layers we'll, we'll kind of hover around and and see how people are doing and see what they need help with and when they find something you know do not grab the piece and go i found something as they raise their hand in the air with the bone ripped out no 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 point to it flag us over we'll come we'll tell you how to proceed and if it's something small maybe it just gets wrapped up in a piece of toilet paper or paleontological wrapping paper um, if it's something very large, then maybe it has to come out in a plaster jacket. Just really depends on, on mm -hmm. what it is. So can day diggers find really important things? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Our, our very last day, oh, I want to say two years ago now, on, on our Bismarck dig site, we had uh, a gentleman who found the largest tyrannosaur tooth that we had yet discovered, which was very, very cool. A shed tooth. And on the very first day the following year, we had a day digger, a, a young man who was about 14 or so, and he had worked so hard. He dug through about four feet of rock and didn't find a scrap of anything. And then as he was working his tools across the site, his, his trowel made a little skeet noise. It's like, what is this? 
And so we went back and started brushing away the area. And sure enough, he found a giant tyrannosaur tooth. So that made his day. So patience is definitely a thing in the lab as well as the field. Um, and just because you come out on a dig doesn't guarantee that you will find something, but somebody around you will. I, I don't plant the fossils. I can't go dig here. There will be something. I'm a mom. I don't have time to go out and bury fossils. <laughs> so it is a little bit of luck. Um, but there's, there's some skill in there too, where we can go, you know, this has been a hot spot over here. Try digging here, or, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot found over in this corner. So maybe avoid that section. Mm -hmm. So, so there's some guidance in there, but I mean, you can get people that find amazing things in a day. Uh, you were talking earlier about, um, how to tell the difference between a rock and a fossil. What are some things that you can tell me about the differences? Uh, part of that is, a lot of that is training your eye. Usually when people first join us, they've never been out on a dig before, and it'll take you about an hour or so to get your eyes used to spotting the difference between what's a rock and what's not. And usually after that, uh, you're, you're pretty self-sufficient, but it's, it's looking for patterns, it's looking for symmetry, it's looking for textures and colors, and each site is different. So if you go to Medora, your bones that you're looking for are kind of a dark chocolatey brown and the surrounding dirt is kind of grayish. If you're going to the Bismarck dig, then your surrounding rock is more of a tannish color and again you're hitting that chocolatey brown color. But if you go up to Pembina, the surrounding rock is dark, dark gray, like black gray slate and your bones are white. Hmm. So it kind of depends on what minerals are preserving those fossils, if it's iron, if it's gypsum, um, so you have different colors that you're looking for, different textures, but rocks generally aren't going to have like perfect edges or perfect round circles in them. So like the end of a bone is going to have a nice rounded shape potentially, uh, or a very, very long shaft in the middle. And, and you're not going to see that normally in your surrounding muds or your, your, your soils. And so it's just something that looks different. And once you, once you start keying your eyes into looking for something that's just different, it's odd, then you start noticing the bones. What are some misconceptions that beginners have? Oh, TV and movies have done oh. wonders for misconceptions. <laughs> <laughs> sure. We have some people that sign up with us uh, in the great hopes that, that we are grandiose TV shows and movies, you know, Jurassic Park or, or whatnot. And, and so they have this idea in their head that they can sit down and just with a brush, they can brush away the surface and there, voila, is this beautiful dinosaur, full and complete. And that's really <laughs> like never, ever, ever what happens in paleontology. Um, paleontology is the study of prehistoric life but we liken it to the study of prehistoric roadkill. It's everything that's <laughs> left over. <laughs> everything that's left over after mother nature's done. You don't find nice, pretty, complete dead cows. You find dead cows that have been eaten by coyotes and beetles and crows and vultures. And the same thing happens with dinosaurs. So you, your, your players are different, but the process is the same. So you get things that are torn apart and missing and chewed on and it may become a fossil, it may not become a fossil. These bones may be sitting rotting in the sunlight, decaying before it ever gets buried in the first place. And so not every fossil that comes out of the ground is pretty. 
even if you find a fossil, you're like, ha ha, I found this bone. Why does it already look rotten? It's like, well, it was rotting before it became a fossil. Mm. Uh, so not everything is easy. Not everything is pretty. <laughs> not everything goes together. Mm -hmm. There's generally going to be missing parts and pieces. Um, and, and it's uh, a huge misconception is just like how much work gets put in, into the field work and the lab work before things ever go on display in a museum. People go to a museum and they see the end product and like, ha ha, here's this beautiful triceratops skeleton, it's gorgeous. But they, they have no idea how much time, how many hours, how many supplies go into the collecting, the transport, the curating, the cleaning. Oh, the, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've always been amazed at how how can you tell from from a small piece of bone what it is and where it comes from and what part of the animal it is and what animal it is? How how, did, how does one learn how to do that? <laughs> uh, it's it's a multi-step process. So with paleontology, you need to to study a lot of different creatures. And uh, a lot of people get discouraged for that exact same question. Which like, oh, how do you know? I'm never going to be able to know. It's like, no, you are just studying different things than I am studying. If I go into a florist shop, I have no idea what the different flowers are. I just look at it and go, I like the purple one. And that's about as good as I get. But the florist who's there can tell me anything about those flowers, how long they bloom, where they come from, any of that information. So it's just a different type of study. I happen to study dead things. So it's modern dead things, old dead things. And it's really cool how, how much your modern dead things help. And when you first start out learning about the anatomy of these creatures, you're learning about these bones, say, well, we'll talk about vertebrates. So we'll talk about um, the skeleton, the, the claws and the teeth and the arms and the legs. And, and so you start learning, not necessarily, this is a femur of an Edmontosaurus. No, you learn, this is a femur because. So you have to learn the whys of how to identify a bone. And once you figure out the whys of why is it a femur, why is it a tibia, why is it this and that, then it will help you figure out where it came from. So once you can narrow it down to, to what bone it is, no matter who it's from, a crocodile, a dinosaur, a human, a dog, whatever, then you can start going back to your literature, your, your papers, your, your illustrated manuals, and start looking through going, ah, this looks kind of like this. And then you can start narrowing it down. Um, and then over time, it just becomes rote. So you just memorize a whole bunch of different things. When I first started with, with this job about 13 years ago, I knew Edmontosaurus inside and out. But if you, if you told me to look at a Triceratops, eh, I don't know. So you just have to learn a lot. And as part of this job, um, you have to expand. So I'm working with everything that could have potentially died across North Dakota. Dinosaurs, clams, birds, mammals. And all of the paleontologists on staff have different different areas of expertise. So mammals are not my area of expertise. I'll pass that along to Jeff and Clint. Uh, but if it comes down to plants, fish, uh, some of the dinosaurs, that's where I study. So we each have our, our different niches that we work with. And then we just study more and we go, what was this again? Oh yeah, okay. But it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of practice. It's a lot of looking at dead things. What 
are you working on now? What are you trying to learn or, or expand your knowledge of, about these days? <laughs> um, right now I'm working on illustrating uh, Champsosaurus, which is an overgrown reptile. It looks superficially kind of like a crocodile or like an uh, Indian gharial or the gavial. It's a very long snout, needle, needle teeth creature. And there have been some publications written about it and they're very, very good publications, but they're not complete. So they were utilizing whatever bones that they had at the time. It just didn't happen to be all the bones. And so uh, this isn't necessarily a published thing, but it's just a, um, we call it like a lab manual type thing where we can pass it along to other museums and say, hey, if you come across a Champsosaur, here's this information. And so it's just a, a nice identification guide to Champsosaur. So that's just a personal project for me. Um, but right now I'm working on our third in the series of our Paleo Primer kids books. Well, not really kids books, they're, they're educational books. Um, they're meant to be non-threatening. So a lot of times you get these, these books or, or educational books and they're either too easy, so the adults don't want to read them, or they're too hard, so the kids don't mm -hmm. want to read them. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to hit a happy medium where it's educational for the kids, it's educational for the adults. We're, we're trying not to be off-putting to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So people can get just like offended as far as like, oh, well, you're treating me like I'm stupid. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. not what we want to do. We want to help educate. We want to, we want to show these people and, and like guide them to different resources. And so that's what we're hoping these Paleo Primer series will do. So we're just taking North Dakota's history and we're, we're chopping it into chunks. Mm -hmm. So the age of the dinosaurs or the, the North Dakota Everglades or the North Dakota Savannah. So we're just taking bite-sized pieces. We've already got the introductory one done and we've got our, our sea monster one done and now we're working on dinosaurs, which is kind of fun. Are, are those available for people to, to purchase or? They're or free online. Oh, on, on the North Dakota Geological Survey website, is that? Correct. Yeah, we wow. have our paleontology page and we have a section called books and educational articles. And on that page, we have all of these, these written up and, and they are free. Yeah. I will make sure that I put those links in the show notes. Now, when you said a moment ago that you were illustrating the Chantasaurus, yep. uh, do you mean like a, a, a drawing or yep. a, a book about, so are you also an illustrator? Uh, yeah, I, I get tapped to do all of our paleo artwork here. <laughs> can, so, can we see samples of that? Can we put some, uh, some links to oh, those? Yeah, in the... yeah I, can, I can send you some pictures for that. Oh, oh, that was very cool. Oh, I will, we'll have to show Any, anything from sculpture to watercolor to to uh, molding and casting and and uh, ink drawings, charcoal, pastels, whatever. Uh, yeah, just what, whatever method we need at the time is, is what I'll use. Are your kids interested in, in fossils? My daughter is very interested in, in dinosaurs and fossils. She thinks it's pretty cool. Uh, for her, it's probably just going to be a phase, though. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Children don't like to do exactly what their parents do. But <laughs> oh, I had a question earlier. You said when you were putting your degree together that you needed statistics. How does statistics fit in, in your work? So paleontology is historically a blending of the biological sciences and the geological sciences. And modern paleontology is including uh, a lot more different, um, disciplines, which is really cool. So it's, it's expanding in how we can learn about the past. 
And so statistics are being used, morphometrics, which was just barely starting when, when I was getting my degree. So I didn't have anybody there to work with morphometrics. And I really wanted to do that, you know, putting different plots and dots on bones and, and seeing how they scale and move and how do these things change as the animal gets bigger. And that's all statistics. And that's, that's all computer programming and, and dicing out these, these different aspects. Um, so there's, there's a lot more of that. There's a lot more chemistry now. So it's, it's really expanding as far as like your typical paleontology degree is maybe including a, a lot more sciences than just biology and geology. And statistics for me helped with, uh, again, I was working with that, that big Edmontosaurus bone bed where we mm -hmm. had all these different animals. And stats for me helped pull out individuals from the mass. Oh. The entire site is just a jumble of bone. You cannot tell what belongs to who. You may be working on a femur and then you run into a tibia and you're like, yes, it's all connected. Oh, it's a right femur and a left tibia. And so nothing was matching. And statistics ended up pulling out the backbones of individual animals and lining them up for me. When I couldn't do that, the computer could. That was pretty neat. Wow. That is way cool. I also am very, I, I love to, to speak with women in STEM fields. I, I think that you are a great role model. <laughs> so does the geological survey arrange, bring people in for, to be day diggers or do they need to go through some kind of tourist agency or how does, how does one make a, put together a trip to come and, and be part of this? So we've had to shift everything online. We used to do everything ourselves, but the program ended up expanding a little bit uh, faster in about 2017, 2018. There was a write-up in the, in the New York Times uh, about us, and then we were on the Today Show. And so we went from a very, very small local program with you know, maybe like 50 people over the course of the summer to about 600 people over the course of the wow, summer. Wow. So it exploded to the point where, where if I was going to do everything myself, that would be all I would be doing is wrangling mm -hmm. people and wrangling uh, digs. And mm -hmm. I don't have time to do that. <laughs> if I do that, well, the fossils don't get cleaned. Yeah, well, and also wouldn't 600 people kind of mess up your sites too? I mean, the, um, th that could be dangerous for to have too many people in, in, in the in Which a is why we have to take them in bite-sized pieces. Mm -hmm. So 600 people over the course of the summer. So maybe you have 14 people a day and then we space that out. Still a lot. <laughs> it's still a lot. It's still a lot. But we have to do everything via computer now. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get onto our mailing list, uh, every December, January, we try to figure out the next year's dig season, the dates for when mm -hmm. we're going to be going out at which particular site. Mm -hmm. And then we send that out to our, our notification list, which is available on that same website. Mm -hmm. You can sign up for that. And come February, we then open up the, uh, we open up the gates on, on Eventbrite. Mm -hmm. And we have a certain amount of slots per day per dig. And then you can just um, sign up for whatever you want. And how quickly do they fill up usually? Pembina takes a little bit longer. Usually Pembina takes about a month or so to sign up. And you get people that, it's, it's a little bit more secluded. There aren't a lot of big cities around the Pembina Gorge. So there's not a lot of amenities. So that one takes a little bit longer to, to, to fill up. The family days, which are the half days for, for younger kids, uh, 10 and up, tend to fill up relatively quickly regardless of the sites. But full days, 
Uh, our Bismarck dig last year, this last year, filled within eight minutes. <gasps> wow! <laughs> so uh, it goes to show that people really like to dig dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> and that is our one dinosaur site. So Pembina sea monsters, Bismarck is dinosaurs, which fills very, very quickly. And then Medora are the, the swamp creatures, the so crocodiles, fish, and turtles. And that one still does fill relatively quickly. Maybe we can get all the odds and ends filled within about a week. Uh, but it, it goes pretty fast. Wow, yeah. that's wonderful. I am absolutely fascinated, and you are a wonderful storyteller. Um, uh, <laughs> Thank uh, you. This is... This, is, this has been terrific. Anything, any other advice that you'd care to share with somebody who thinks that they might want to try coming out to be a day digger? Oh, advice. Uh, advice in general is keep doing your jigsaw puzzles. They honestly do mm -hmm. help because you're looking at not only colors, but you're looking at the shapes of where those pieces are fitting. So that will definitely help train your eyes for a little bit more for field work. Um, see if you're ready for outdoor work. Like if, if you go on a short little walk around the block and, and you get kind of winded or, or it's too much or, or you get overheated, digging probably isn't going to be the, isn't going to be suited for you. Um, you will be out in the elements. We do have porta potties and shade tents and all that, but Staying outside takes a lot out of you. And a lot of people just don't understand how much sun and wind can affect you. So spend a couple days outside, wander around, go, go hiking in, in a local park or something and, and you know, see how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And if, if you're okay with that, then I think the digs will be just fine. And how has uh, COVID affected your work? We've had to reduce the numbers of participants this year just to increase social distancing. Uh, we're making sure that anybody who is in close contact with each other, like when we have to take people out in our passenger vans, we have to wear face masks. Um, and we're spreading out instead of packing everybody into one van, we're spreading people out into two vans. Um, we are sanitizing the tools between every use, uh, any of our chairs, the trowels, the awls, everything gets sanitized at the end of the day, the vans get sanitized at the end of the day. Um, and it does make it a little different for the daily routine, because usually we would include the public with getting elbow deep in plaster and helping jacket these fossils. And we really can't this year. We're, we're hoping to, to do that again next year, but this year it's just a little too uh, unsafe. And so mm. the staff is doing the majority of the plastering or some, some trusted volunteers are doing the plastering. Um, or if somebody has a question on site where they have uh, something they need identified or they want to show off, we have to wait for them to move out of the way first and then we'll go in and examine what it is they're looking at. So it's, it's putting a little damper on the up close and personal, but we're making it work. Yeah, it sounds as though you've figured out some good solutions for how to deal with this. We're doing the so, best we can. So when do you move into the lab um, for the season? Usually the public digs end with, with the school starting uh, about mid-August or so. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we may end up going back out into the field to hit a couple different sites here and there. Uh, things for, for more research end versus public end. We don't want to take somebody like the public out to a dig 
or an, an area that has not been explored because mm. they may not find something. Yeah. We want to take people to established sites where there's a high probability of finding something. Mm -hmm. So research areas where we may be hiking for a week and find nothing, mm -hmm. that's not something I'm going to bring somebody out with. Mm -hmm. uh, but once we're done with that, usually about September-ish, mid-September, October, sometimes it stretches into November, depending on our weather, mm -hmm. <laughs> then I'll get back in the lab. But I try to fire that up soon because I do have a, a whole lineup of volunteers that assist me. And if I'm not in the lab, then I can't have volunteers in the lab. So in the summertime, my lab is shut down. And then once I'm back for the fall, mm -hmm. then I open it up to mm -hmm. my volunteers again. And is there something specific that you know you're going to, to work on as soon as you get back into the lab? It is a shifting priority. Mm -hmm. So one year we'll come back and it's like, oh, there was this really, really cool arm bone. You know, let's work on that. And so we'll prioritize that. And then maybe we go to another site and we find something that's even cooler or rare or unique or something we'd never discovered before. And so then that gets bumped up. And so it is a constantly shifting priority list. Although I do put my foot down on a few things like I will clean this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, I admire you for finding work that you so obviously love and for inspiring hundreds and hundreds of people uh, in your work. It's great to hear about it. My thanks to Becky Barnes. I invite everyone to tell me what you've always wanted to try. Also, please take a moment to fill out a brief survey so I can find out more about you. You'll find it at lizsumner.com survey. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. I'm Liz Sumner, reminding you to be bold. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>